0: If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor.
1: First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use.
0: Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
1: And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership.
0: It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us.
1: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm.
0: everybody. This is Dr. Scott. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am here with my bestie and co-host.
1: That is me, Dr. Shiloh. Welcome to LA Not So Confidential.
0: We are so excited to be back. We've had, like, an amazing week. I was traveling all over the place. You're getting ready to travel. Yeah,
1: I'm leaving for Miami tomorrow morning.
0: And I just came back from the Blue Ridge Mountains with my family, which was awesome. That was totally cool.
1: Yes. Yours was vacay. Mine's work.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mine was great. Um, wait, you're going for work?
1: Yeah, I'm
0: doing a conference. Oh, I can't even keep up with you.
1: But the only thing I can think about is when can I get some time away to go visit Versace's mansion?
0: Oh wow! So I'm gonna try yeah. to get out there. Yeah, you got to get a picture in front of that. Definitely. That's yes. so cool. So, um, gosh, so much going on. Something, another couple of things, really cool that we'll we'll get to. You know, a couple of episodes from now. Um, that's very exciting. Um, that's that's wonderful, that, like, amazing things can happen when you work on a podcast and things that we never expected, and it continues to grow. And like we've said in the past, we just so value our listeners because we wouldn't be able to do this or have as much fun if we didn't have wonderful listeners.
1: It's the best.
0: It really is great.
1: Just the um, the ways in which we engage with different stories and the things that we're all interested in, you know, that's bringing us together in the first place. Yeah. But... Um, I love kind of the back and forth when we're just putting out an article or something interesting. Yeah. And feel like we're having these little intellectual social media conversations.
0: Yeah, and you you guys one thing I wanted once again we I always want to like express how much gratitude we have for our listeners um which is just constantly constantly amazing to me. Um it's um please if we haven't responded back to an email we will get to it. Uh, it's kind of increasing. Like we're getting a lot of, uh, emails and chats and posts and, you know, we just appreciate every single one of you. It's just going to take us a while to get back. Um, and what we try and do, cause there have been a couple of things that have been, I wouldn't say emergencies, but we've had some people in need reach yeah. out to us. And right. what we have done is try and
1: triage, triage email, those email sometimes. Yeah.
0: And try and get people to resources if, if that's mm-hmm. indicated. Um, you know, we do really want to ask. I'm going to be a little bit grubby here. Please always consider giving us um, a, a high rating on iTunes. Uh, there's a practical reason for that. If you're here, you probably like us. The practicality in getting a, a great rating on um, iTunes is that it benefits us in the long run. It knocks us up in ratings, and it gives us the opportunity to pursue more content yeah. and, and, and kind of further our, our uh, work. And, um, and if
1: you really like us, leave a little comment, Yeah, not just a, a rating, but leave a review. Let us know what you like, what you want more of, what you want less of, you
0: want less of <laughs> which we've gotten a couple. So I have to share so the, the, the thing that I want to clear up very clearly is that we each have a bottle of water in front of us in Check. the past. There have been probably three episodes where we've been at my house and we weren't driving. So we knew we could have a couple of glasses of wine. We're not able to do that right now because we're, you know, in a a location where we have to drive home. However, we are not eating. We're not chewing into the camera. This is just what you get when you're doing a podcast on the fly because I, we've gotten a couple of reviews from people, that I may be a little concerned that you have some misophonia going on. <laughs> Me? You know, no, not you. I think our, a couple of our listeners Explain have.
1: Explain what
0: that is. Well, misophonia is a, a, a really strong emotional reaction to certain sounds or noise. And right? one of the biggest triggers for people with misophonia is mouth sounds.
1: Oh, I think we've talked about this before. Yeah.
0: In fact, like when I worked in prison, there was a guy that tried to use the excuse that for getting off uh murdering his cellmate that he was misophonic and um that the chewing sounds were just too much for him. So Wow. I'm sorry. You know, we I, I, we do what adjustments we can, um but
1: If you want some hilarity, go read some of our recent reviews. Yeah, there's you know some we're talking about.
0: Go go down to the the couple of two-star reviews and um it's, it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny.
1: All right. So we are here today because we are talking about killer athletes. Um, we're going to h- highlight a couple of really big cases, but this is just another facet of really celebrity and crime, which right. is always super interesting. Um, the sports world is just another aspect of that. And so I think when we started off kind of prepping for this and how we wanted to attack it, if you will, um, you know, one thing that pops up to me with celebrity and and sports figures is just do they feel like they're above it all and sort of the the ego in which in common language we kind of talk about ego. And um, would you agree that celebrities are sort of a self-selected narcissistic group
0: I, In a way, I would say a subset right. of them definitely fits that category. But I can't paint with a broad brush. I mean, I can't do I can't paint with a broad brush, you know. As a person who worked as a producer and a casting director, working with with actors who have gone, you know, who started off from certain backgrounds and training and went on to become, you know, there are some people I gave their first jobs to that are doing really, really well, and I think it runs the same spectrum as the general population that basically so much of it has to do with the solid parental parameters and having mentors and role models and as a young developing individual you are held accountable to higher parameters which, which is, should be the standard for every child and every uh, parental system whether it's, whether it's a a single parent or a couple parent. Now, that being said, I do think that celebrities and uh, athletes or celeb-athletes live in a slightly different world. One of the things that happens in many of the big paying pro sports, like just to use mainly the basketball and football, Mm -hmm. is that many of these young men are are egged on. They show athletic talent and prowess. And what happens is that that is pursued and pushed by maybe coaches and parents and peers to the detriment of developing other skills in their sure. lives. And I'm not going to paint a broad brush because sometimes I'll hear people some of the the athletes talk and I'm like, damn, that That is an insightful, really deep comment, and that's based on like an understanding of philosophy. Right, very well-rounded.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. like
0: Aaron Rodgers. Like every time Uh that guy opens his mouth, it's like, damn, that is like he is not just a one-faceted individual, and we shouldn't assume that they are. Right. I'm surprised
1: you know the name of a professional football player, Scott.
0: Well, come on, if you know know what Aaron Rodgers looks (laughs) like, like uh, how could I not? That is a good-looking dude.
1: Are you a fan of any sports? Like, have uh, you ever followed or, like, had one that
0: not really. was I mean, something you're into? Not really. I mean, if I was going to follow anything, I would follow hockey. Like, the few okay. the few live hockey games I've gone to have been absolutely exciting.
1: Hockey in person is so much Because fun.
0: you're right there. It's not like being on a football field in a huge you know, stadium or anything. True. But anyway, just to, to take it back to, you know, to round out that discussion is I think that any time an individual is in a rarefied situation you live in an echo chamber much like we talk about delusions or um, people that are you know integrated fully into belief systems as you you kind of self- select and you know one of the one of the things that will happen with like especially in the music industry today more so than ever before is surrounding yourself with this crazy entourage mm-hmm. and a bunch of yes people that right. there's no one there to say no to you and i think that that is really unhealthy because it, you it's while you're succeeding in your art or your sport What you're not doing is you're not having an experience of failure that's actually real. That's what us people here in the common world, we fail every day. Right. And that's great because when you fail every day in even minuscule ways, you develop resiliency and you, you know, move forward.
1: Right. Right. So they're at the level where really it's we're talking about a level of wealth where you're having these hangers on people that are your yes people. And or they see the potential for the wealth to be there, too, or to be just a sort of a pseudo associated with the celebrity. Um, It's been really interesting in the last several years to see a lot of celebrities coming out and talking about their struggles with mental illness as well. I mean, there's been a slew of essays written and, um, you know, Michael Phelps is doing therapy commercials and things like that, but there, there is a huge stigma in athletics and predominantly because of it being very male-driven and not wanting to exude any weakness of there being a stigma of asking for help or if you can't handle your stuff that you're somehow less than in a field that you're supposed to be able to handle everything and be at the top of your game um but yeah there's there's just been a ton of ath- professional athletes opening up about their struggles with mental illness. Um, the Players Tribune is a uh it's a professional baseball um like online magazine, and Derek Jeter a couple years ago had collected twenty six personal essays by male and female pro athletes who had struggled with all kinds of stuff childhood trauma, substance abuse. Um, depression, suicidality, just some really gripping stories and put them out there. And I think that was a, a big push as well. But it, it's it's really neat to see that shift in a profession where it's not happening, very similarly to how I see it in law enforcement now, where we're talking about some of those things.
0: Yeah, I remember several years ago, I don't know if you m- may know this actor, he's never really hit it huge on the big screen, but Dominic Purcell is an Australian actor Like just this, he's like a a brutal looking guy, like a big, handsome, beat up face, um, very fit, Um, and he's been around forever. And he was he was in uh, Prison Break. That was he had done a lot of things before that, but that was his big thing. Um, And now he's a series regular on the on Legends of Tomorrow, which is a CW superhero show, and he always plays a gruff guy. I mean, I've never seen him play anything sensitive. He does have a great comedic sense, so he can do comedy. But it wasn't... And I was listening to a podcast where he was being interviewed about his struggle with panic disorder. And it's... it's Even as a professional, I mean, here I am, I buy into who I think that this individual is just based on the the parts that he plays. And here he is opening up about how absolutely debilitating his panic attacks were and how anxiety just you know really impacted his life and I just I love that he said that and he's like this big guy that other men would be able to go oh if he can talk about it then I can talk about right. it you know so I love I love the fact that athletes are coming forward and I think it also that's has such a great impact on younger athletes because the pressure to succeed in so many sports you know, while we love it, we love watching those games. We love, wa- you know, I love watching gymnastics. And yet part of me now know, like, knowing what the, the training that the, those young women have to go through. Right. It's like I have really mixed feelings about it.
1: I do, too. I do, too. I think about, you know, just the – if we're just physically looking at, like, what they're doing to their bodies and suppressing development because of their rigorous training schedules – I guess at that level, you, something's got to give at that level.
0: But it, It's a complex conversation right there, especially when we talk about younger athletes sure. making decisions. Sure. You know, whether it's going to be something that ends up being CTE or t- TBI right. later on, or whether it's a young woman who is so athletic pre-men- pre-menstrual that she then delays her menstrual cycle, which has... A lot of sequelae down the mm-hmm. line has a lot of mm-hmm. consequences, you know. Yeah. But she should be allowed—they should be allowed the choice. Right. I don't. Or should they? I don't know. It's a big conversation.
1: Yeah. Their brains aren't even developed to make choices right. <laughs> and weigh consequences. But
0: we, add, you know, we we uh, demand that. The, what is it? The male brain doesn't really finish developing until 26 now, yeah. I think is the latest. Yeah. And yet we're more than happy to send our young men and women to right. war and to do a lot of things. But that's a— Another conversation. Exactly.
1: So in, in honing in on homicide and murder, I looked at the three big professional sports here in the United States and was ac- able to find some really good lists and databases that have been kept. Um, so really, I kind of looked at the last 20 years, I had to go back a little further with um, some organizations, but so for the National Basketball Association, I was only able to find one professional player who had been convicted of homicide, and that was all the way back in 1991. Um, lots of drugs. There's a lots of drug DUI uh, convictions with all of the professional sports teams. Um, But for the NBA, I found one homicide. For uh, Major League Baseball, there was one from 1991, uh, but it actually happened in another country. This player named Julio Machado, he actually shot a woman after a traffic accident in Venezuela. Um, He claims it was self-defense, but uh, he ended up being convicted and he served 12 years. Wow. And then... The other Major League Baseball player who was convicted of a murder was back in 1948. So Blackie Schwamm, he killed a doctor, a Long Beach doctor, as working off a debt for mobster Mickey Cohen. Wow. (laughs) So that sounds like a very interesting story. Uh, But he was sentenced to life in prison, and he served time at San Quentin. But even though he received life in prison, he did end up getting paroled in 1960. So two for MLB. um, And then we get to which is still
0: statistically higher. I mean, like if you're looking at all these examples, that's statistically higher than the general population of non athletes. So it is significant. I think so.
1: Um, We get to the NFL. Uh, So I looked at a very comprehensive list from the last 20 years. The crimes that really stuck out in NFL, lots of guns, lots of drugs, lots of intimate partner violence, um, and several, several DUIs, but there were, aside from, obviously we're going to talk about Aaron Hernandez later, aside from him, there were three pretty brutal murders, and they're in the last 20 years, so Year 2000, a lot of people might be familiar with Ray Lewis. He was accused of murder in the stabbing deaths of a couple of men outside of a club in Atlanta on the night of the Super Bowl. And he ended up—there was a big crowd, and he ended up pleading all the way down to obstruction of justice and got one year of probation.
0: What the hell?
1: Um, He went on to win the Super Bowl and MVP the following season. That crime still remains unsolved. So I, you know, I don't think necessarily that he was the perpetrator in the stabbing, but obviously was there when it happened. It was kind of rounded up, and initially accused um, in 2001. Jeremiah Parker, he was accused of child abuse. In the case of his girlfriend's four-year-old son, and this happened in Halden, New Jersey, and essentially the boy ended up going unconscious after being shaken by him. The mother was also accused, and he was convicted of endangering a child. He was acquitted of manslaughter because I think they determined they couldn't determine necessarily if it was him or her, but he was sentenced to ten years in prison. So that falls more under child abuse, um, death. But I think this, or the, really the most tragic of these three is in 2012, when Jovan Belcher of the Kansas City Chiefs, he fatally shot his 22-year-old girlfriend, Cassandra Perkins, 10 times in front of his own mother, mm. who was there essentially watching their child. Um, he flees the scene. He takes off, drives to the Kansas City Chiefs team facility and steps out of the car with a gun pointed to his head. And he's met by Chiefs General Manager Scott Pioli. Belcher tells him that he murdered his girlfriend, thanks him, and basically says, will you take care of my daughter? And he's joined by Chiefs Owner Clark Hunt comes out. um, And they're they're negotiating with him to drop the gun right there and then the you can hear the sirens the sirens are getting closer and basically he kneels down by the car makes a sign of a cross and shoots himself in the head wow. so very tragic there there were three others but they were vehicular manslaughters as a result of DUIs um, but just some really sad tragic cases in the NFL
0: yeah i mean i one of the thing i One thing that really requires some exposition or at least note in this conversation is, you know, while this is controversial and I have I have some I have some controversial opinions about this controversy. But look, in the NFL, especially today, you know, I'm not an expert on football positions. I know very little bit about it. But I know that that linebackers have the heavy lifting if they were if they were in the gaming system there are tanks, right? So they have to be big. They have to be very big. And let me tell you, no man naturally reaches that weight. And look, we, we... we are all anybody who watches football or supports this, and I'm not judging you, but we have to understand that we are all complicit in that. Sure. We we are part of the system that requires these games become ever more exciting. So now we have as opposed to hundred and eighty pound guys hundred years ago playing football, we've got three hundred pound guys rushing into each other with this unbelievable amount of force. And because because they've been enhanced by the use of steroids. And the best doctors. in in the land, you know, making sure their livers are clean and giving them the right supplements and the right food. But the steroids are doing the heavy lifting and the steroids have an impact in the male physiology regarding impulsivity, anger, irritability. I'm not opposed to them. I think that we should take a European view like the European you just in many European countries, you can buy them over the counter. They also have a lot less abuse because it's just sort of understood in the community here. We don't. I don't know. And I'm not, I don't know what the right thing is. But I do know that if we're pumping these athletes up to these unbelievable weights and then they're engaging in these crashing, you know, traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. or CTE instigating injuries, you know. Right. It's we're going to see some impulsive behaviors and crimes as a result.
1: A big result in all of those areas, is cognitive, emotional, Absolutely. Behavioral.
0: Emotional lability, emotional instability, um, but the impulsivity too. All that, you know, I'm kind of motioning to the front of my head now, but like that injury to the prefrontal cortex and the place that we have executive functioning that allows us to take a step back from our impulses and like take a breath and think about something before we act. Problem solved. Problem solved is one of the first things that goes in those injuries.
1: Right. Before we get into our two big cases, did you have anything else historical or sort of overview, you want to?
0: I did. Check I mean, out. like, it, rather than end with him, I want—I do want to talk about a couple of I think fascinating cases. One of them, <laughs> like, bear with me, just to have my former life as a performer um, and my advanced age. Um, there was a a singer, dancer, actress. Uh, she's still alive, but she was really big in the '60s and '70s. Named Joey Heatherton. Willowy, Unbelievably sexy blonde, really gifted dancer. Um, And she was on the variety show. She never really hit it big in movies or anything, although there were a couple of things. Her father was a performer um, who was very well known. But she married Lance Renzel. And Lance Renzel was was a very, very famous uh, football player um and it, on his way up and he was like the all-american blonde god i mean just this really handsome man and he was caught twice in a car masturbating in full view of children and it wasn't that he was masturbating and trying to hide it he was purposely seeking out young girls around the age of 9 to expose himself to while he masturbated and it ruined his career you know, rightfully so. As it will do. Um, but it was it was really rough. Um, he tried as far as, I know we're going to get into more about defenses, like one of the defenses they used, and this is like, you know, in, what, 1970, the defense they tried to use in the... Uh, the uh, trials was that he was overwhelmed with anxiety and depression after seeing two movies one for each event so the first event that he of exposure was after reading the book 1984 that was so devastating to him that he just had to go whack off in front of a kid. Right. And then the second incident was after the movie, watching the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs> so I, I mean, Movies
1: like, named after years or books named after years. I did not make that
0: connection. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. He has a very
1: specific trigger. Really?
0: Okay. To wow. masturbating
1: in public. Wow.
0: Okay. 1917. He should really not go see that movie. No. He's 70 he years not, old oh now. He shouldn't God. go see it. But um,
1: wow! And in a, in a horrific crime that we think of another worst of the worst—a s- sex crime involving children.
0: Exactly, and I mean, even though it's a non-contact offense, and you know, there was there was a big lawsuit. Um, you know, it, it, it affected his career. Likely, he was with the LA Rams, and even after one of the events, now this is what's interesting about how our culture has changed. Is Lance went back to play for the LA Rams. And of course, got completely reamed by the uh, by the audience. They were calling, like uh, yelling, "No Lance, no pants, Lance!"
1: Oh my god! Uh, they had
0: tons of uh, nicknames for him, but that was the no pants, Lance. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I do want to read something that was fascinating about how the psychologists looked at it at that time. So I'm going to read the Ooh, quote. Yeah. And I wanted to put it by you because you're still closer to that milieu than I am being a decade out from us working together in that field. Sure. Um, Lance's book, Lance wrote a book. It's a straight autobiography. Um, not just about those two events, uh, but, and not necessarily justifying it or making excuses, but he does talk about some of the stressors in his life, but he, uh, There was a theory at the time put forth by the psychiatrist that men like him coming from a rough background, he had some parental stuff, that he was trying to prove his masculinity. And so this was an exertion and a way for him to take, retake his masculinity, that somehow he had been emasculated by, of course, his mom, and that his, especially flashing at young girls or old ladies, who would be the ones supposedly most likely to show a reaction. And it's interesting because in his book, he talks about he's having really sadistic sadistic coaches at the time that were really bad. They would work players until they literally they pass out on the field because you thought, well, this is how you toughen them up. Well, no, that's that's how you cause organ failure by doing that. But um, the idea was that this was all about him working out his sort of developmental issues about his parents and reclaiming his masculinity so what say you about that dr Uh Shiloh?
1: i'm a little suspect of that it sounds a little too freudian for what is probably just a compulsive deviant sexual interest um it, especially that does that it make involves, him a pedophile um so oh, wait before to, yeah. no he's
0: still alive we're not diagnosing. No, 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 no. We're going to say that, but a person in that position—does that make them a pedophile?
1: So you would really have to drill down to what is arousing about the behavior. So, is it the public masturbation piece, or is he aroused to the children? Are are they the, are they the thing that's arousing to him, and then he's? He's then choosing to masturbate right there in front of them.
0: So, what part does the reaction play? Like, is he is is this atten- an attempt to get a reaction from that particular population?
1: Sometimes it is about the reaction. Okay. Sometimes it's just such a compulsive behavior that it's anxiety relieving. Okay. So, I think I would lean more towards if he didn't have any post-pubescent victims that he be he might be more pedophilic disordered. Um, that would be really interesting. I just don't think there's enough information to say they might be. It may be he just likes masturbating in public, and so he's an exhibitionist. But they're an easy sort of target or sort of victim. It's not that they're necessarily children or aroused to children. Right. So it could go either way. But
0: I love that. I mean, I love the fact that you don't have a definitive answer. No. That, but what we're doing is we're talking about that there's a lot of diagnostic elements here to look mm-hmm. at and you know this guy is now 70 years old he's led a quiet retired life he's gotten out of the limelight hopefully he's gotten some help sure hopefully there have been no more offenses but that's that's very interesting and so looping on to that the next one that i was going to get that's a little more recent is and it's related to, to football but it's not a football player himself is jerry sandusky so that oh boy yeah, you and I, we had some big reactions to this. Like, and I think for, for different reasons. I mean, having both of us worked in that area of sex offenders is one thing. Understanding the motivations, understanding the abuse, which was really bad. Right. What was disturbing in the Sandusky case? And for, the, for those of you who are not aware of January Sandusky, he was a coach, a uh, football coach at a major, major university, uh, Penn, Penn State. State. He was the defensive coordinator, and he had was well known by one portion of the population as being like this amazing father granddad figure to all of these poor foster boys
1: red flag red yeah flag. big
0: red flag right there and what was happening actually was that he was not just molesting them it was Full on sexual acts sure. um, on a consistent chronic basis a number of them I mean just numbers and numbers of counts so that in itself is horrible the bigger context of horror for me that relates to sports as a whole is how there was a cover up right and everybody knew about it right everybody knew about it in fact coaches like there are coaches that were in the trial process that I easily diagnosed as being traumatized. Like there was a redheaded guy. I can't remember what his name was, but I remember him being interviewed and being on the court, the tapes of him being on the stand. And he was having trauma responses Mm -hmm. because he was in the position of not being able to do anything. He went and reported it.
1: Right. Is he the one that walked in on it in the shower? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. And was so horrified. Right. But then here you are, you're witnessing this horrific act and his career, you know, he has mm-hmm. responsibilities. He has a job. He's told, shut up, ignore it, whatever. A lot like something else, another one of our elected officials right now who is going to go down big time when all that comes out about his former coaching days. But to me, that was the bigger thing is the cover up.
1: Right. The, the, the money that the organization produces is more important than any victim.
0: Right, which leads back to... And
1: your, or these players that are being, you know, that have, uh, are being injured over and over again and suffering greatly Because they're, the right. they're part of a
0: machine. They're part of a machine. They're fodder for a machine. Right. And the, the it, it's more about the university that's making money or the NFL or, you know, making just sure. unbelievable amounts of money. Crazy, crazy yeah. money. So those were the two that I found really interesting. I mean, there's, there's more when we go just even beyond homicide there's fraud forgery theft you know Pete Rose's mm-hmm. betting yeah, insider trading yeah. Michael Vick's you know I mean there's something that we both know it's part of that triad of like not understanding that it doesn't matter what kind of animal it is but like dogs we have such a connection with In our Western culture, the idea that you could engage in that kind of behavior really tells you about where that person's mindset is. Well,
1: all of this evokes the reaction when we find out about it, like with any other celebrity where we go, man, they had everything. Yes. Why would they X, Y, Z fill it in? And I feel like that's what today's episode is about is the why. Like, yes, here's these horrific things that happened. But we really want to look into what are the factors that possibly led to
0: it. So, yeah, and in the, like Jerry Sandusky, why he's driven by bisexual by desire Absolutely. and by his paraphilia, sure. his desire and his crimes are then supported by turning a blind eye, creating an echo chamber where on some level he's got to know that someone has tacitly endorsed permission to continue in this behavior right so he continues in it what's different in the example of Michael Vick is that like you were saying that example of Michael has everything he didn't need money no like why are you doing this so there's something about I would go so far as to say that there's something about the stimulation that he gets from either watching that kind of destruction or a sense of power over the people that he's pulled into it
1: right yeah
0: just shooting from the hip there, yeah. So, um, do you want to start with Aaron?
1: No, why don't you start with Oscar?
0: Okay. So, uh, we wanted to use two examples. Um, Dr. Shiloh is going to hit with um, Aaron Hernandez, which is hugely in the milieu right now in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, and we'll mention those. But I wanted to go back a little bit further and talk about Oscar Leonard Carl Pistorius. Um, in 2015, well, there's... It's a fascinating story for a number of reasons. And I get to share with you a perspective. Like I said, I love being wrong and being corrected and and cranked open so that I get more information. And this is absolutely one of those examples because I was studying for licensure right as the crime had occurred. And I had a study mate that gave me a perspective. But so uh, Oscar Leonard Pistorius, he is... Uh, a 34-year-old South African professional sprinter and convicted murderer. Um, he was found guilty in 2015 for murdering his girlfriend, his live-in girlfriend, Areva Steenkamp. Um, this is They're both South African. The fascinating thing about Oscar Vistorius' backstory is that he was born with a congenital absence of a fibula, In both of his legs it's a condition called fibular hemimelia and it means that basically there's a deformation in the lower part of the leg so that certain bones just are not not included in the package when the baby comes out and it's not able to be corrected by creating other uh, appendages or you know moving bone from bone especially in in an infant so As he was hitting toddlerhood, I mean, right between, you know, uh, toddler and uh, infancy and toddler, it was advised to his parents that his legs should be amputated between, like about halfway down the shin um, below the knee and then be fitted with prosthetics. And because of having the full thigh and the full knee and a good part of the fibula, that he would be able to have... um, really great mobility. Well, nobody knew that basically he would go on to become like a a really kind of amazing athlete. So even as a middle schooler or our, you know, the South African version of middle school, he was in a private boys school. He immediately excelled in wrestling, um, all sorts of calisthenics, uh, rugby, water polo, um, And it was even noticed that one of his coaches that was interviewed years later said that it wasn't until five months in to working as a coach in the high school that he even realized that Oscar had prosthetics. Oh, my
1: God. What drive?
0: Seriously. I mean, you know, and supposedly had wonderful support. Oscar was very close to his mom. Um, He suffered an injury um, that injury to his knee. That was really going to affect him playing rugby and some of these other sports. And one of the coaches said, I really think you should concentrate on track. And then basically where he was doing well before, he literally just exploded. And this guy was like a clearly a talented runner. And one of the consultation of coaches uh, got together and realized that he would do better if he was given polycarbonate blades to run on. So um, after a couple of tries that did not work so well, he was given a couple of uh, of blade um, prostheses that didn't really work well. He was given these cutting-edge prosthetics that were uh, made here in America, and he learned to use them as an athlete so well that he immediately just shot through the ranks, not only in the Paralympics, but he also had a legal case because he wanted to compete in the in the abled, fully abled Olympics. Right. Um, and he did and he But
1: then there was some question, does he have
0: an advantage. An advantage? And there was a lot of controversy right. about looking at, you know, okay, even if the measurements are exactly correct so that they're that blade is not longer that right. would give him a slight advantage. Is the spring coming from it going to give? You know, there are all these factors they looked at. Sure. And ultimately, they decided that it was not giving him an advantage. He's just really an amazing athlete. So, he... I, I could go on and on and on, but we don't even have enough time to talk about ever all the it, awards Wasn't he won. his
1: nickname Blade the Blade Runner? The Blade Runner, right. yeah.
0: Um, there was some controversy. He got a little... Pissy one time when there was a controversy about another athlete who was using uh, uh, blades as well. And he kind of threw almost like a Tanya Harding stink, kind of complaining and demanded that that runner's blades be measured to make sure that he didn't have an advantage. Sure. You know, so on one hand, he's also a very nice looking man, you know, um, uh, very athletic, handsome, clean cut, and he has this beautiful model girlfriend so you know on one side there's this image of him sort of being this you know golden boy and what they were hiding was that you know he had a temper and he would have like fits of anger and a lot of arguing with his girlfriend he was charged at one time with discharging a weapon for having a weapon in where he wasn't supposed to Uh, and then He One night, while living with his girlfriend, he woke up, believed that there was an intruder in his home, in the bathroom, pulled out his gun from the nightstand, and shot four times. It was then discovered that it was his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, in the bathroom. She was immediately uh, deceased from the four shots, and... You know, his excuse was that he woke up in an anxious mood and thought that there was an intruder. And the the trial system itself was was a circus. It was caused, so
1: interesting to yeah, watch from It Yeah, very there.
0: interesting because they was charged with these charges and the charges were knocked down. And then the judge was called to task because her reasoning was really almost comparable to what the judge said about the supposed um oh what's the one we were talking about the kid the um entitled kid
1: oh affluenza
0: the affluenza it was I almost think that's
1: like that's going to be our next episode we should be we should
0: yeah. we should dive deep on that one <clears throat> so the 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 outcry against the ruling um came back and caused him to go back and add additional time to him and he uh, was You know, I'm always careful about how we judge people's presentation in court.
1: We talk about it all the time here.
0: But there was a big change. You know, he was very stone-faced the first time. The second time, it was like almost like he had been coached to be dramatic. Right. um, And and crying and sobbing. And then one of the... the defenses that came up was that he had an anxiety disorder and that the anxiety disorder was directly related to him sort of being impulsive and losing his ability to reason. And he was groggy and scared. So he grabbed the gun and shot it. Now it's in. Okay. So here's where the interesting twist comes in for me is that
1: because it, it, before you go there, I know that from afar, our view was yeah, right. Right. Okay, it was an intruder. You know your girlfriend's spending the night there. She can get up and use the bathroom. What a great opportunity to say, you know, if you really wanted to shoot her or if you did out of a fit of rage— to use an intruder theory that it was mistaken identity.
0: Right, but if also, if it was rage, then there would have been intent because he would have waited till she was in the bathroom. Right. He's lying in wait almost, yeah. right? Yeah,
1: for that opportunity.
0: Exactly. So there, that's something that you can go down that pathway and mm-hmm. examine. But mm-hmm. I, have a, I have a really good friend here in LA who is a marriage and family therapist. She's fantastic. And she is from South Africa, and she was my study partner for licensure. And I remember during a study break, we were talking about this, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy's so guilty. Right. And she goes, well, wait. And I was like, "Gilla, you got to be kidding me. She goes, no, wait. You need to understand about our culture. And I was like, oh, wait. That's right. It's on the other side of the world. There's all True. sorts of different things. And the way she explained it to me was really compelling. And what we don't understand, like we see a lot of violence in the U.S. and we have some street violence, and we have gang violence, and we have intimate Loads partner violence. of
1: gun violence.
0: Lots of gun, way too much gun violence.
1: Right. Violence against women.
0: However, the, what Gilla explained to me is that there is a lot of political and racial unrest still. in South Africa okay. still, and that she said what you don't understand and which i which she says what i wish they had explained in the news is the layout of the homes in south africa it is so dangerous after dark each home is a compound there is a tall solid wall around each home it generally has barbed wire on the top whoa uh metal gates and each home is two stories so your casual living area is on the bottom floor where you might be watching tv have a den however at night when you're going to bed you go upstairs and it's a it gates off the bottom floor from the top floor because that because home invasion is one of the major crimes that occurs there
1: so the sun goes down and every night is like the purge
0: that's the way I felt <laughs> like she how, was describing it. Right. I mean, that was my. And you know, when I, I locked down. I checked into night. her. So we're going to see if I could get her to be interviewed. She was busy this week, so she wasn't available. And it's been, you know, like six years since we had that conversation. But it I, sounds I, terrifying. It sounds absolutely terrifying. Especially someone
1: with money and celebrity. Again, they're going to probably be extra.
0: They're extra vulnerable, vigilant, right?
1: And you know, yeah, because of their vulnerability.
0: So she goes, "You have. Please understand that, like, the vigilance that you have." Living in this apartment in a very safe neighborhood with two doors of security is very different from what they live with there. And I was like, okay, I can kind of see it. Like, I could see that possibility. I don't know if I completely buy into it. Right. But it it did lend some weight to...
1: To sort of the anxiety and the...
0: Right. I mean, environment. So it's not that like anxiety was the reason that he shot her like, oh, I'm having a panic attack. I need to just shoot my gun. It was more about maybe an underlying low level or high level constant anxiety about safety. Sure. So you're hypervigilant. You wake up in the middle of the night, you're groggy. But, you know, you can like people with anxiety who have sleep problems will wake up from a dead sleep and their heart is racing and they're. Their body's awake, but their brain is not awake. Right. So, I'm not defending what he did. Um, I'm just saying that that is a very interesting supposition. And the case was appealed in 2014, um, and they had lowered, uh, like in 2014, the judge had given him. They had moved it or acquitted him from premeditated murder and giving him giving him a lesser charge of culpable homicide. What would the American version? It would be second-degree manslaughter, Yeah, probably manslaughter. Um, But then, of course, there was a huge controversy resulting in 2016. um, They had to give him an additional amount of time. So he uh, had a couple of falls in jail. He he had been eligible for parole. That was parole that was revoked. Um, But really, the original sentence that got extended upon was only six years, which does seem incredibly short for the skimpy defense that was put out there. Um, So he uh, got out, I think, for four hours on October 14th in 2016 to go to a funeral service for his grandmother, which I think is pretty great. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I love that the system does that. I know mm-hmm. we used to do that in the U.S. We, I don't think that's ever done anymore. Um, so he has... Um, he is still in prison. He is supposed to be a model prisoner. Uh, he has... is. I think he was always very religious or presented as very religious and has sort of a ministry within the prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, he's keeping his nose clean. But, uh, yeah. It's an interesting case. It and I don't know... You know, we don't have a lot of background on, you know, was there sort of an abusive relationship, but we do know that he had a hair trigger. He would would tend to argue.
1: Right. Maybe a bit of a temper there, but uh, no glaring factors of, oh, okay, yeah, we saw this coming. No,
0: no, no glaring factors, except, I mean, one of the things I would say that I don't know if it's directly related, but I find fascinating is... What he accomplished is so representative of such drive. Right. Like amazing, like, uh, unbelievable drive. Like I, I, you know, I try and wrap my ra- mind around sure. having that kind With of. With our
1: able-bodied legs yeah. and I still
0: wouldn't be doing. <laughs> I, I can't even do my crunches and I'm able, <laughs> somewhat abled. Right.
1: Should we hear a word from our sponsors? Let's
0: hear a word from our sponsors. We're going to be right back, folks.
1: So I went to the restroom on my break, and there were some detectives in the hallway talking about old sex cases that they're opening up as cold cases and DNA. And I was like, I want to be in this conversation.
0: Oh, cool. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> so I was in the bathroom, and, and I'm all dressed like casual today because I'm off. So I definitely couldn't insert myself into that conversation. They'd be like,
0: who are you? (laughs) Well, it's also just would be creepy as hell. Like this strange woman like, what What are you talking about? Tell me more. That's so cool. (laughs) All
1: right. I am going to talk about Aaron Hernandez, ever popular right now, like you mentioned earlier. Majority of my information is going to come from the wildly successful podcast by the Boston Globe and Wondery called Gladiator and then the subsequent documentary on Netflix right now, Killer Inside the Mind of Aaron Hernandez. Both are fantastic. I am certainly not going to do them justice in sort of rehashing what they did. But what I'm going to do is kind of relay the story in a timeline And then I really want to focus on factors, kind of the thing everyone's talking about after this. I also today started his brother's book. Oh, wow. um, And got through the first few chapters about their childhood.
0: Oh, okay. I can't wait to hear that. I I have to say there were so many people at work that had had watched the documentary and everybody was having big reactions to it. Like a lot of conflicting, Mm -hmm. like a lot of very... Uh, spirited discussions about a lot of it, which I thought was very interesting to have that much sort of reaction to it.
1: Yeah. I, I reached out to one of my best friends from grad school. She came out here from Boston, hardcore Pats fan, like to the nth degree. And I texted her today and I said, hey, as a fan, but also a forensic psychologist, she's like a leading forensic psychologist in New Hampshire now. How did you feel about all this when this went down? Because I I didn't pay any attention I to this, either. honestly. I mean, I, I thought here's some dirtbag guy that made it to the NFL that, you know, whatever, had gang ties and got in trouble for this thing. And that's about as much attention to it I gave to it. And she she said, you know, it it sucks as a patriots fan because he was so good but he gave the team such a bad name and there was this disgrace that sort of enveloped the whole community and the fandom and but she's like brain injury not an excuse he's clearly antisocial
0: well so, i mean that's that's the thing that i'm i'm so glad to have her perspective me too. i think that's fascinating because i like you were saying is i wasn't i mean i'm not a sports fan really right and um I remember coming into it at the trials, not even. I mean really, it was already at the trials because it was like otherwise it's just a couple of crimes, right. which is horrible to minimize you know death. But I remember by that time when you would see pictures of him, and you would my impression was I looked at him and I'm like, "Oh, he's got shark eyes."
1: Oh, interesting. Like I
0: just remember going, no, he's got Those that dead. He's got that dead lack of expression. And what I found interesting though, is as you're watching, you know, and they need to do filler on the news and they show pictures, there was light in his eyes as a teenager oh. that clearly, went out. Now, I don't know what this, the reasoning is. I don't know what the motivating factors...
1: I got it for you. Okay. But <laughs>
0: clearly, but yes, there's an affect change
1: Adorable. In I mean, just those dimples and that smile and...
0: It's they, also like you know, like a lift in the eyebrows, yeah. like there's really a complete facial muscle muscle activation. You're right, and then later, like that is gone. Yep. And to me, I do think that was related to to the um, CTE. Sure. Some of it, at sure. least.
1: Yeah this is this is a case where there are many many factors, and it really was the perfect storm to lead to where he ended up and. So who is Aaron Hernandez in a in a very quick nutshell he was born into a football family in Bristol Connecticut his father played at University of Connecticut and was just a a force in the town. I mean, they, his nickname was the King, wow. and um, he, he had a brother that was three years older than him, um, and both excelled in football. Aaron excelled in sport, other sports, basketball as well. But at 17 years old, he ends up going to the University of Florida to become a Gator. Which is is football big in the South, Scott? <laughs>
0: They, I, I occasionally hear about this thing between Alabama and Auburn. I, I think it may be a thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it is. It
0: is next to religion in the South.
1: Football at the University of Florida, along is, with
0: pageants. Well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> ooh, killer pageants. Um, it, huge. Like at seventeen, he's just going to this massive football empire. Um, And he's all American there. And then he doesn't even finish college and gets drafted to the NFL by the Patriots. Again, talk about an empire. Um,
0: So at the age of 20. Right. So laying down the path already is we've got a. Somebody with an underdeveloped brain, as we all are, have underdeveloped brain, brains. God, I can't even talk today. Being pushed into this, like, immediate celebrity rocketing almost overnight. Although he had laid the groundwork.
1: Oh, yeah. He but was a phenomenal athlete. He's a big guy. Big guy. Big guy. Big guy
0: and not getting there naturally by the way.
1: Probably not. Yeah.
0: So, Probably once again, not. when I was talking about earlier, I be- I really believe that that was a factor. You know, it's yeah. not a factor in, in everybody. There are some people that can control their irritability and anger and, like, understand it. Sure. I sure. don't think a kid necessarily has the skills to do that.
1: So, let's, let's go through the crimes that he is connected to, and it okay. is more than just a couple of crimes. And when
0: does it all start?
1: So, okay, so he goes to the NFL in 2010 at 20 years old. Um, we don't see okay so September 30th 2007 he's still a Florida football player and there's two men that end up shot in Gainesville Florida outside a club Aaron is one of four football players from Florida who are questioned about this he was never charged but he was definitely a person of interest because the victim ends up describing the gunman very much Um, matches Aaron's description. That witness then recants. So that ends up getting closed um, and, well, not closed, but unsolved, and they end up um, sort of, the case goes cold because the witness doesn't want to talk anymore. um, And it sort of ends there. So that's 2007. Fast forward to 2012. He's now in the NFL. So July 16th, 2012, two men, Daniel D'Abreu and Sefrino Furtado, are killed in essentially a drive-by in Boston's South End, again, outside a club. Um, they were two very stand-up guys, just hard workers. One had actually been a police officer back in his home country. I forget where they're from, maybe the Dominican or something. Um Police initially had no suspects, but they had a pretty good vehicle description that was caught on video. Um, And it turns out, as they're reviewing the video from the club that night, they go, oh, look, Aaron Hernandez was at this club same night. You know, kind of this like, oh, there's a celebrity. Wow. And there was sort of this joking of like, maybe Aaron did it. But, you know, the detectives are doing their job. And they're like, no, just because he's there doesn't mean he did it. But Interesting. About a month after that murder, both of those men die. About a month after that murder, Aaron signs a $41 million contract with the Patriots. Damn. Right. About a, little well, less than a year later, February 13th, 2013, Aaron flies his friend Alex Bradley down to Florida to go party. The next morning, Alex is found shot. Between the eyes,
0: Ooh.
1: he's alive.
0: Oh my god! There is
1: audio um, of the cop talking to him, saying, "Who shot you?" And he literally has a bullet hole between his eyes, and he won't say who shot him. Meanwhile, Aaron took a flight back home, and uh, this guy refused to to talk. The detectives say, "All right, you can be a victim of shooting and you want and not talk. That's totally fine." And he ends up calling Aaron and says, nice job, you didn't kill me. And basically wants to take care of it himself. Doesn't tell the cops that Aaron shot him, but reaches out to Aaron and says, I'm coming. This guy was like a hardcore criminal.
0: Oh, okay. Now
1: you've crossed me.
0: Oh, sort wow. Of thing. Okay.
1: Turns out this was he, guy. Like, so
0: um, what was his background? Like dr- drug? Drug. Uh, drug sales
1: and stuff like that. <laughs> guns. He was with Aaron the night at the club that those two men were killed. So he was the he he was out partying with Aaron that night. So essentially, you can start to see he's the link between Aaron and these other murders. And now he's saying Aaron tried to kill him with this setup of taking him down to Florida and, and shooting him. So a few months later, June 17th, 2013, the body of Odin Lloyd, who is a semi-pro football player, is found in an industrial park very close to Hernandez's home. Um, They they were acquaintances. They were both actually in long-term relationships with sisters. So Aaron's live-in partner, who's the mom of his child, was the sister of this victim's girlfriend. They weren't married to the sisters, but they were in long-term relationships with them. Um, and a couple weeks later, Aaron is, ends up being arrested for Mr. Lloyd's murder. So it's very eerie leading up to his murder when he is announced as a, a person of interest and the cops want to talk to him. There's actually news footage of them following him in his white SUV on the freeway. Mm-hmm. And very O.J. reminiscent. Wow. Um, There was no pursuit going on, but here the the media is sort of following in a helicopter overhead. And he drives to the stadium, which is reminiscent of the football player I talked about earlier, um, goes inside. They basically shoo him away, and he goes back out and then goes to his house, and then he ends up getting arrested. But the— The information was out there. The press was kind of onto it that he was going to end up being arrested.
0: I mean, I don't know if that's directly a a parallel to the other event that you talked about, but like that the stadium would represent some kind of safety or home or.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it really seems like and, and I know Aaron felt that he was particularly close with the owner of the Patriots to where there's sort of this pseudo father figure. Right. Um, and
0: certainly a better father figure than, sure. than he had.
1: And with with the other with um, the other person I talked about at the beginning of the episode, you know, talking about like take care of my daughter and things like this. So there is that that pseudo relationship there. Um. So the day after he's arrested for Odin Lloyd's murder, investigators from the double murder in 2012 in Boston start to go, oh, wait, he was arrested for a murder with a gun and he was seen at the club where this happened? Um, so they suggest that he might be connected to that and they're going to start investigating it. And then grand jury hearings start for that Boston case uh, soon after that and he does end up getting indicted for that mur- those murders as well while he's still waiting in jail for the trial to start for Mr. Lloyd's uh, murder. So while they're doing this, they end up doing a search warrant on his cousin's home because he spends a lot of time there. And guess what they find in her garage is the SUV that was caught on video from the first one that's just been sitting there for a year. She's been hiding it out for him. So uh, going back to the murder of Odin Lloyd, there is a shit ton of evidence. I mean, he was not very savvy at all. I mean, bullet casings, his own home surveillance footage of him coming home that night with two other people and holding the gun and just not not the smartest criminal.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, killing someone that you know and doing it very close to your home, all of that. Um, There's cell phone records. There's there's a ton. So um, at some point while he's in prison awaiting trial for both of these, um, he is also then... Indicted on a charge related to the shooting of his friend that he took down to Florida, so his friend finally ends up coming forward because he ends up being a key witness for the two men that this were murdered. Is
0: already so complex.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot. It is very complex because of sort of the timeline, um, but essentially we're talking about know several different shootings i mean if you include the one when he was still in college that he was questioned about we're talking about four different shootings oh he's okay to. so he does end up going to trial for the murder of odin lloyd and is convicted on april 15 2015 he gets life in prison without parole um so He does get indicted for the case against Alexander Bradley, and then he's waiting trial for the 2012 shooting. They end up finding a shank in his cell, so he gets moved to isolation at that point. Um, And then for his second trial, he retains noted Florida attorney Jose Baez, who represented Casey Anthony.
0: Oh, wow. I'm sorry, I've said, oh, wow, like five (laughs) times now because it's like, oh, wow. Right,
1: right. Um, So that seems to work out for him because he gets acquitted. Jose Baez once again works his magic and um, gets Aaron Hernandez off for the murder of the two men in Boston. And five days later, he's found dead in his cell. He was 27 years old at his death. So, here we are with a case of a man who's involved in a lot of suspicious, connected, serious crimes, leaving a wake of victims behind. But we really get a peek with these documentaries and podcasts and book of what life was like for him and these factors. and And I think the one that's easy to look at is looking at the brain damage. Um, because it is, it, it's pretty jarring when they do sort of sort of the postmortem examinations of his brain to see that as a 27 year old man,
0: it How looks much like there was. Yeah, it
1: looks like a, a, a dementia patient far into their disease. Um, so the picture side by side of a healthy brain and a brain with CTE is just it, it, it's pretty jarring to see, but. I think there's a lot more to that. Um, we'll come back to CTE in a second. One factor which we always see with people that we end up treating in the prison system, their social influences, right? And whoever they're hanging around with, if they are even not even easily susceptible, because we're all susceptible to influence from our peers, absolutely. But Aaron was someone who. He ended up playing with a team in the NFL that was very close to home, so he still was able to go back home to people from his childhood and from even his college days, and a lot of that was spent with some unsavory characters outside of his primary family. But when he spent a lot of time with his cousins and at her house, there that's where he met a lot of these people. And we're talking... Like, he was high all the time. He talked about in high school, in college. Um, It's evident in some NFL games that he was not put on the roster that day, probably because he failed a drug test. You know, they wouldn't say that. They would say he didn't prepare himself enough to play today. Um, But he admitted that he was high almost every time he stepped on a field. Which is incredible because you think, what would he be capable of if he wasn't?
0: (laughs) Well, but then then again, I mean, going back to Oscar Pistorius and the idea of uh, the impact of anxiety, you know, an addict at the point, maybe they don't start out with what later becomes a comorbid issue. Maybe they do it for peer pressure or for whatever reasons you start using substances but at at that point if you're a daily user you have now you're self-medicating something even if you're self-medicating the tolerance that you have now built up and do we say that weed and THC are addictive? There's a lot of controversy out there. Sure. However, anything become addicted if it's based on self-medicating an existing issue which might be either organic or characterological. Sure. So maybe that's what was happening. It sounds like from some of the family stuff you're about to talk about, there was a reason he was self-medicated.
1: Right, right. So we have we have the addiction, possible addiction issue or substance use issue. We have the social influence issue. You also have a lot of family dynamics and slash abuse. I guess is what I what I would categorize this. We could tease it apart, but they all kind of go together. So. There's a lot of recounting, especially you know, from his brother's book, about his dad's drug use, their dad's drug use, and how that would play out at home, whether it was being incredibly strict with the boys or abusive with them to where he's holding them up off the ground with one hand and spanking them with the other to... Um, having an electrical cord from the end of an appliance and plunging it into their scalp. Oh, my gosh. Because he's just annoyed with whatever they're doing, like some awful stuff. And then between the parents, these boys are witnessing some severe abuse. Mom putting out cigarettes in the dad's forehead, him bashing her head to the kitchen or into the bathroom sink until she's slumped over. Just awful stuff but then as they're starting to get older and perform at top of their game in high school in football dad is incredibly loving and just i'm so proud of you i could hold you guys forever i never want this night to end when they have these amazing games together cuz they're playing on the same team and so now it's all about pleasing dad and filling these really good moments and he the brother actually paints some really lovely cute Family evenings, sometimes you know them all watching movies together. Right,
0: or, but look, but that the duality
1: of what they're experiencing exactly, and
0: and it makes absolute talk about sense. anxiety
1: provoking. Yeah,
0: I mean, well, being in a position where you're afraid that mom and or dad is going to revert back to what they were before, mm-hmm. but also the more thing that's insidious is to look at the fact that you know mom and dad didn't change intrinsically who they were just because their sons became successful and started exhibiting amounts of talent. They changed their behavior because they recognized a narcissistic extension mm-hmm. developing and identified with the successes of their children. Absolutely. So, you know, we see it negatively in stage moms that, you know, are trying to live or stage dads. They're trying to live vicariously through their children's successes.
1: And where does that leave the kids?
0: In in a desperate need to keep that that self medication happening, right? Getting mommy and daddy's the love, validation. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you have this going on, and then when Aaron is seventeen, his dad goes in for hernia surgery and dies. So now you have this this point in their life where, that you're just explaining where. Father figure is now gone. His brother is already off to college, close by University of Connecticut, but his brother's off to college, and it's just him and mom, and dad dies. Not long after that, mom starts an affair with Aaron's cousin's husband and moves him into the home. Wow. So his dad is dead. <clears throat> now you have someone else in the home, and your brother, best friend, has gone off to college. And th- there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. Um, but so once this happens, Aaron is very angry with his mother and starts spending time at the cousin's house, uh, the cousin whom his mom is having an affair with her husband. The cousin's name is Tanya. And that's where a lot of the negative social influences are. She's letting him do all sorts of things. She's calling his mom and saying, basically, I'm his mom now. Um Tanya's the one that ends up hiding the car. She's also, um, while he's going through his trials, uh, accused of trying to get his accomplices from Odin Lloyd's murder out of state. Like, she drives them out of state and buys them bus tickets. She's very, very loyal to Aaron. And this entire time while he's going through his trials, she's essentially dying of breast cancer. And she refuses to testify. She gets put in jail due to contempt. It's... A very interesting relationship I'd love to know more about that relationship um, their phone a lot of their phone calls are recorded and played in the documentaries and Aaron's basically like, You can't die because I'm nothing without you and here she is clearly dying from breast cancer um, so this this all speaks I think to to hopelessness as well as is building when we talk about suicide being an outlet for someone um, We have that. All of that, layered all underneath that is the information that Aaron is struggling with his own sexual identity. And his high school quarterback is now, you know, out in all of this, um, the documentaries and the podcast talking about their sexual relationship that they had in high school that they kept hidden. Um, And so we start to look at... The home, what messages are being sent about what it means to be a man from his father. Um, the moment he has some sort of unmasculine um, mannerism, his dad's telling him not to act like a faggot. Right. You know, there's there's a lot of... And it
0: wasn't even something, what I understood in reading that background was it was not only the times that he might have engaged in something that did not fit the dad's expectations of masculinity, but it was just sort of the run-of-the-mill way of of antagonizing or torturing his children. Or sure. Like, don't talk like a faggot, don't right. act like a faggot, don't walk like a faggot, don't stand there looking like a faggot. It was always kind of really compounding this this homophobic rhetoric that right. in a young man, you know, always, well, not always, but most of the time, unfortunately, metastasizes as this internalized homophobia where, you know, you really just, you, you completely compartmentalize that side of yourself. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we live in a time where that happens a lot less than it used to. But right. if this is also heartbreaking, Despite the crimes that he committed, which are horrific, the idea that in you know 2010 basically he was experiencing this.
1: Sure. So, and we've you talked know, about in-
0: between, a little bit earlier that yeah. before his dad died.
1: We've talked about internalized homophobia before, and and the self hatred that that brings for someone that is essentially being subjected to those negative. Jr.:
0: and there have been murders. Which maybe that's a good episode, uh, a topic for an episode is men who have committed murder, and based on somebody was going to out them, and there are plenty of right. cases of that. I mean, like that's a that's no. It may not exist on its own as the motivating factor for murder, but it certainly
1: well, is, and that's is that's a, a theory motivation. behind why he killed Odin because of of. It, I never heard anything to really substantiate it, but the idea is, you know, he's dating essentially his sister-in-law and that maybe this it, it, the person that Aaron's in a relationship with, you know, kind of known as being the cover where they're in a relationship since high school, she's kind of his high school sweetheart and they have a child together, that Odin was kind of privy to the information
0: that maybe... Of what was really going on. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um... So, you know, of course, this is all added just for anything that we've described and what he's going through. Then add being in the spotlight in a you can't find more alpha male dominated sport. And there's also rumors that he he left several um, letters at his suicide that one of them was to his lover in jail. So. I don't know. You know, you talk about like was this about to come out, um, and so instead of being homicidal, he was suicidal. I, I just think it's all building up. Um, a lot of what we talked about before—sort of the money, the fame, the ego, the celebrity—I think that is a factor in all of these things we're talking about. If we're, to, if we're talking about just piling it on, here we go.
0: Well, um, I'd, I'd like—I'd so, also like to add that. You know, we tend to think about these things in binary terms when we talk about gay versus straight when there's actually an entire spectrum in between there. Sure. You know, it's sure. completely possible that he was, you know, uh, bisexual, bisexual, pansexual, sure. and just enjoyed sex. It could have been anywhere there. And like you said, just the comfort level he had with his high school sweetheart. Maybe she let something slip. Maybe it's used or maybe it has nothing to do with it. And it doesn't have it, it, we don't know if it has anything to do with that that particular crime it might it might not it's an interesting theory but once again we want to reiterate that it's unsubstantiated right, right now
1: right yeah there's and there's a lot of interesting not necessarily like academic research but articles out there about the pressure for celebrities more so in the past obviously to not come out because of what it would mean for their career. Or oh, Does absolutely. it mean the money's going to dry up? Right.
0: Or? I mean, I, I used to work with an agent who would be so pissed off because one of her clients was going to come out. And she would like, how oh, dare – like, he's going to ruin his career and I'm going to lose my income stream. And I'm like – you know, as a, as a gay man myself going – Wow. Okay. You're, those are the things that you're willing to sacrifice in your moral makeup and and on behalf of your client because they're not just doing it to themselves. They're getting it from the publicist, from the agent, the manager, sure. the producers. And the producers are thinking this is back to money, this right? is our, you know, this is our all, Uber alpha male lead of a uh, of an adventure series or a, a high action series. Mm-hmm. we can't, he's a hot he's a red-blooded american male we can't right. have him be gay we see some shift now but you know it used to be it was a death sentence for sure. for many careers sure
1: sure so let's talk about cte or chronic traumatic encephalopathy um we used to term this punch drunk if you've ever heard that term um but essentially it is a degenerative brain disease caused by repeated head injuries. And it is dementia, but with a different cause. Um, So as we talked about earlier, you're going to see deterioration in cognitive functioning, the way people are thinking, the way that they're making decisions, the executive functioning. Scott was talking about in their impulsivity and being able to control that.
0: There may be memory problems involved, short-term memory. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Emotionally, more irritable, feeling more raw, depression, um, a lot of negative symptomology in terms of emotion. And then we see that out in the open by behavioral issues. So how they're interacting with other people or dealing with problems. Um, but essentially there's they've found that of people exposed to multiple head injuries, the rate is about 30 oh. percent
0: of those
1: in a third. That is incredible to me that they're yeah. suffering from CTE.
0: Yeah. Or will.
1: Or will. So there's, there's four stages. The first stage is The first stage is going to include symptoms like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as well as confusion, disorientation, dizziness, headaches, things you think about (laughs) when you're getting hit in the head. Second stage symptoms, memory loss, social instability, because it's starting to now affect relationships, poor judgment, um, acting before thinking, and then the third and fourth stages... Progressive dementia, so we're talking about could be movement disorders, speech impediments, um, sensory processing disorders, tremors, deafness, vertigo, just, yeah, it sounds awful. and then severe depression and suicide at that point.
0: So beginning with some of the earlier symptoms, which could have been irritability, uh, some Confu- depression, confusion, right it makes absolute sense that somebody would want to go towards trying to self-medicate those things with any substances they could yep. get their hands on. So, again, copious amounts of weed. Right. There may have been irritability from the ongoing steroid use. It's just a number of things. It's just a, a so many factors, and we'll, we may never know what did the heavy lifting unless somebody does. I mean, I don't know if, that they... Do an autopsy on his brain. Do we actually have pictures of his mm-hmm. brain, or are oh, we yeah. using? Okay. Yeah. So, is that the comparison one you yeah. put up? Okay. It's
1: not the one that I put up. That's not him. But the in the documentary, there's a, a doctor that is doing a presentation, and she shows wow. his, and it, it's very similar. Um. So, again, you know, uh, I think this perfect storm of factors are the social influences in his life, the substance use, the abuse. He was also. At least on one instance, his brother knows that he was sexually abused by an older kid in the neighborhood, the abuse by his father, um, the domestic abuse that he witnessed, the possibility of internal homophobia, the loss of his father, that's really when people say they saw a shift in him. A change, yeah. When you talk about that, that deadness in his eyes that just they knew he was not going to be okay and he was just different after that um and then head trauma absolutely i think it's it's a factor here um but i think my friend is right i mean there's clearly antisocial personality disorder markers that we can see um there's even a, an incident where he when he was 17 and first went to florida where he punched a manager at a bar, right? And um, you know that was taken care of by the attorneys and was dropped. But I mean, he really clocked this guy. He ruptured the inside of his ear, and so we can even see before he's an adult some conduct disorder stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, you know, I don't want to necessarily disagree with your friend because she's you know right there in the middle of it. What I would offer is, is that remember, we've talked about this in our episode about sociopathy or psychopathy is that, you know, you can be born with those genetic markers that set you up for that pathway. But, you know, children witnessing trauma, ongoing trauma and being socialized to violent norms and interactions between their parents and criminality being if not promoted, then sort of tacit enabling of those behaviors, then that's how you create a sociopath. Sure. And you send them mixed messages. I mean, it's certainly how you create really a spectrum of characterological disorders is by constantly sending your child mixed messages. Right. So that they think they understand how they're supposed to act in this situation. And then you take an electrical cord and jam it into their head. You know, that's a perfect example of how you can really rewire someone's brain.
1: Right, right. And exactly.
0: So nature versus nurture in this, we won't know, but definitely the behaviors reflect somebody that was willing to engage in that.
1: So, of course, it seems like when anyone dies in jail now by suicide, there's a conspiracy (laughs) that that's not what it actually was. So I just wanted to talk for a moment about stats of people who die by suicide in jail and I also want to take a moment just to kind of talk about the terminology and how we're trying to change the lingo when we talk about suicide. If you notice I'm not saying committed suicide, I either say death by suicide or died by suicide. And that's a conscious shift in our field to get away from stigmatizing it by using the word committed now where we associate that with committing crimes or being committed to a mental institution. That yeah. word has a very negative con- connotation. So the you'll hear professionals in the field starting to move away from that. Um, so died by suicide is is the technical term. And don't ever say, he, you know, this person was a suicide. Um, that's really bad. That's really bad. Yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't say so-and-so was breast cancer. You know, you just don't call them yeah. by that um so i teach at the jail academy where i work and i know you worked a long time in prison and jail systems um and there's a lot of good research out there about even local jails versus big prisons and suicidality which i think is really interesting um so when he was very first arrested very first arrested. When he was first arrested and taken to jail, um, they had him on suicide watch, which I think is great. It's a very responsible thing to do. The first twenty four hours someone is in jail is a very high risk factor for suicide. It's the shock of being incarcerated. It could be the shame of the situation setting in, you know, whatever they've been arrested for. Um their stable their stable support system might start to decrease a little bit or they might start to think that it does it's just it it's a very high rate of people that kill themselves within the first twenty four hours it's about I think twenty four percent and then you if you look within the first week fifty percent of people who kill themselves in jail do it in that first week so that the the impact of being incarcerated in confinement is is real um, the rate of Suicides in jail are about three times higher than in the general community. Um, 50% of the time, the individual is intoxicated when they do it. 23%, like I said, do it, or 23, 24% do it within the first 24 hours. Where do you think they do it most often within the jail facility?
0: In the shower.
1: It's actually in their cell. Oh, in their cell. So 80% of them do it in their own cell. That's why if someone is suicidal, you should never leave them alone because that is just completely isolating and they have the time and the means to sort of put their plan together. Um, What do you think the top method is? Hanging. Yeah, 93% do it by hanging. Um, The top two causes of death in local jails are heart disease and suicide. And heart disease is a top killer for everyone. Yeah. But it, suicide is not the top killer for everyone. Right. So obviously there's something unique about that situation. Um, so uh, aside from what we've already talked about was probably going on with him, he, he just got a life sentence. He has all these other factors that have led to how he has chosen to live his life. Um, social support. You know, he He talks with his brother after... His arrest and talking about, like, we're going down to the local high school to pick up your plaques because they're taking your name off of stuff. And you can just hear, like, the crestfallenness in his voice of, like, what at first, but then he laughs it off. Um, He's essentially just kind of being erased from history
0: and yeah which probably didn't need to be communicated I mean I'm, I know his True. brother is probably hurting but you know that's True. not necessarily the best thing that you communicate which is something that is I mean again talking about you know on the other side there's the individual who is incarcerated and there's also the family members who completely don't understand this process either no. and don't understand they're being traumatized the, as well they're being traumatized and and you know everybody and what information pile are they going to pull from to know how to best communicate right right so,
1: and those with the most to lose it all of that funnels into hopelessness which is the biggest risk factor for suicidal ideation which you and i working with pre-trial clients the more they had to lose the more we were on high alert right um because they they really feel like they cannot come back from that and look at everything that he lost yeah. so so just to wrap up, um, it, the NFL has implemented a total wellness program as of last year, which sounds great. Again, you need people to take advantage of it. And I think they're starting to fight the fight of of um, just battling the stigma of mental health. Um, but they added every NFL team has a licensed mental health professional that is at the facility, um, you know, a dozen hours a week. Not. Only just kind of looking for people with problems, but there to kind of be there if someone wants to talk to them or provide training and wellness programs for them. They have cross crisis hotlines. They have mentorship programs. Telehealth is available. Financial counseling, uh, intimate partner violence education, summits and conferences and trainings and seminars.
0: Isn't it amazing to think that like this didn't exist already?
1: Well, and the NFL is one of the last to sort of hop on board because, like, MLB has had domestic violence awareness programs that they all have to go to mandatorily. Um, NFL is pushed back for a long time, but I think they're starting to see the writing on the wall. But good for them that they have this in place now. It's going to be up to people to start utilizing it.
0: So do I have – can I talk a little bit about suicide and – yeah. incarceration settings, yes, please <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> so what I wanted to share about that, having worked in the prison system and in the jail system is that there is especially if you're in a jail when you're when you go to prison, there is a lot of pressure that comes off because it's a different kind of hopelessness that you deal with, but you're settling into a routine whether whatever the length of your stay is in prison, whether it's life or relatively short term, you're settling into a new rhythm of life.
1: Your new
0: normal. A new normal. And there are some really difficult things about prison and there are some awful prisons and there are some states that have way worse prisons than others. But you do you're able to adjust in a way that being in jail is very difficult to adjust to because being in jail does not have the physical freedom. You don't have as much ability to move around. You don't have access to the outside. You don't have some of the liberties that prisoners have, which keeps the tension and the anxiety and the depression and any other factors kind of thrumming at a higher frequency.
1: It's this temporary holding cell, so, but you have people coming and going coming all the Coming and time. going. It's very straight chaotic. Off the
0: so the people that are coming in straight off the street not be stabilized. They might still be violent. They might be under the influence. Right. They might need stabilization. But having said that, with the relatively, you know, significant Episodes of suicide of celebrities while incarcerated is that there's a process that if someone, you know, many, many jail guards and prison guards that I know have been highly trained in recognizing all these factors and you know what to look for. And if you don't, then you're not paying attention to the trainings because these trainings are given over and over and over again. So anyone in his position, should have stayed on suicide watch. I absolutely. Mean, it's, it's absolutely shocking to me that he was not on suicide watch. And the way jails are set up is they're set up with a, what we call a, a partial panopticon setting, so that the people the the guards sit in a in a um, tented window observation unit with a like a over a 180 degree view into every single cell. So. Now, some of the cell doors have to be uh, limited glass because even the highest tempered glass can be broken because you've got inmates in there that don't have anything better to do but figure out how to break that glass. But... They've been um,
1: using steroids for years. Absolutely.
0: But there are some that are high observation housing versus sort of dorm housing. But there's always a constant watch. So I just want to bring up where I'm jumping... Out of athletes, I'm going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. I'm going to be very con- uh, upfront and con- uh, transparent. I don't know if he killed himself. I honestly don't know. Yeah. But I will tell you this: um, he certainly had the motivation to, because narcissists, when they see no way out, have absolutely no compunction about taking. It. I was like, well, I'm not. I'm going to take control of this. I agree. I'm not going to let anybody run my narrative. That being said. Every protocol that should have been in place was broken. Even though someone comes off suicide watch, you have a mental health professional that slowly and consistently assesses on a day-by-day basis as to what they can have back. Can they have shoelaces back? Probably not. Can they have towels back? Probably not. We're gonna give them a non-terrible blanket and non-terrible clothing for seven more days so that we can observe them. So the idea that Epstein had access like almost like it was he was just completely off suicide watch, yeah. given all of his access to these terrible and foldable and 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 um, hanging materials, and you can get very creative about how you hang yourself. You don't oh, have sure. to be hanging from a door. You can hang from a doorknob. You can hang from anything that where they can just you know,
1: sit down and put pressure.
0: Absolutely, yeah. if you're willing to do it. What really makes this look particularly bad in Epstein's case is the lack of. Uh, interaction by the guards nobody I mean in the jail I worked in anybody that high profile would have been watched constantly no breaks and the idea that that camera was broken I'm not going conspiracy theorist I'm just not going to go there but I'm going to tell you that like there's a lot of things that just don't add up unless it was a horrific confluence of events which I highly doubt there's also the chance that like he could have paid someone to take him out True. You know, he had enough money. He had enough access. That could have happened. Um, when it comes to Hernandez, I mean, I really think that at some point, you know, and they talk about this in the documentaries and some of the things you read, is that even in his worst behaviors at the end, there were still parts of him that were tender and boyish and boy-like and a need to attach to another person. Right. And he may have felt that he was doing his girlfriend a favor, that like, if I take myself out then this will all be over. It'll be all over for my family, whoever's left. She and my baby will get my
1: however much money. They'll
0: get the money and it'll be done. And he just couldn't in his functioning, you know, and he could not really kind of cognitively grasp likely the next 40 years of his life having to deal with this, you know, not having a life. Sure. You know, and so two different um, examples um, suspicious. I think you know. Obviously, I don't think there's necessarily a conspiracy theory about that I believe about um, Hernandez. Yeah. But Epstein, there's too, just too many factors. I don't know. But I don't know. I don't know if he did it or had someone do it or someone else did it. But I think there's a the lot. He's the perfect
1: of, candidate to kill himself. Yeah. I really am not feeding into all the conspiracy stuff.
0: Yeah. But. maybe he paid somebody off to like hey turn the cameras off cuz i'm going to do this Maybe. and of course being a you know a pedophile the lowest of the low in the system these guards could have been sure let's yeah. let it happen you're a piece Oops. of garbage who cares
1: all right, another one in the books. Another one in the books. All right, so Affluenza next.
0: Affluenza and Let's do it. and we have a um, we have a couple of uh, cult members, former cult members, that are volunteering to be interviewed that I'm very excited about. That'll yes. be soon when you get back from Miami.
1: All right, okay, you guys. We will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, folks. Bye.